The information and opinions presented in this ARC Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the ARC Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas Podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Terzakian. Welcome back. Well, Jackie, we've had a couple of weeks back. It's been great summer. The weather's turned really nice. Yeah. What How's, do you think about that heat wave? Are you surviving yeah, it? Absolutely. Yeah. I feel I love like we're it. always complaining about the weather. Yeah. Because, well, at least me, it's either not hot enough, and then the last week it's been, wow, that is like almost too hot. Yeah, I know. I always say, well, if all you have to complain about is the weather, then uh, you've got it pretty good in life. I wish all we had to complain about was the weather. <laughs> Those were the good old days. <laughs> okay, well, what are we talking about? Well, we've got some topics that we want to cover. I want to talk about pipeline news. It's uh, been kind of a, a rough patch since we last talked in terms of cancellations or delays for pipelines mm-hmm. in North America. And we want to talk about, is it possible that uh, no new pipelines are built in North America? And what would be the implications of that? Yeah, and then we're going to talk about write-offs for oil and gas majors, including Total. That's right. Total wrote down some oil sands assets, but they're not alone. We had BP mm-hmm. and Shell make major write-downs. And there are some people saying, hey, the divestment people were cracked. You know, yeah. these, these assets are stranded. So we'll talk about if that's true or not. Related to that, BP just cut their dividend and is aggressively transitioning to cleaner energy. So yeah, I want, want to talk, talk about, about that. that. That's really quite intriguing uh, with potentially bigger consequences. So we want to talk about whether or not BP is a lone wolf amongst the super majors or whether it's a trendsetter. But before we get into that, I do want to mention news just yesterday that Husky announced on their aggressive ESG goals, saying that they want to reduce their greenhouse gas intensity by 25% by 2025 relative to a 2015 baseline. They aspire to have net zero emissions by 2050, and they have other targets like 25% women in senior positions, as well as increased spending with Indigenous vendors. So Mm -hmm. I think this is real Canadian energy leadership and follows on the trend where a number of major producers in Canada have made really aggressive goals. Yeah, I think it's really a great trend where we have to go now is measurement, validation, and communication to the rest of the world that this is what we're doing. Yeah, you know, and, I, and make it happen. I, you know, I've seen, again, recent articles in international media that suggest, oh, you know, Canada's the highest cost producer, is the highest emitter, blah, blah, blah. Well, we're not getting the message out that we are actually working very hard at the corporate level, not the government level, at the corporate level to try and improve things. Mm-hmm. Well, and more than half of the production of Western Canada has now committed to yeah. aggressive goals, either net zero or a 30% reduction by 2030. Now, I think the problem is because of that perception that, that's out there, we actually need to prove it. Like the faster we can reduce these emissions yeah. and show the numbers, that's going to be needed for recognition of the change. Well, let's put it in context. I mean, Half of all Canadian production is roughly two and a quarter million barrels a day. I mean, that's over 2% of the world's consumption right now. And that's happening here. So these are very positive trends, but it's not good enough to say you're doing something. It's not even good enough to actually do it these days. You have to do it, measure it, get everybody to agree that you've done it, and then communicate it effectively. That's going to be the next challenge for 
these players in our Canadian oil and gas industry. Yeah. I think about last year. It was last summer when we had Steve Lott from CNRL come on the podcast and Mm -hmm. he had an aspirational net zero goal. And that was the first time. And over the year, we've seen more and more commitments. And it's great to see that even with all the uncertainty around COVID, you've got companies like Husky still stepping up to very aggressive goals. Yeah. Pipelines. Yeah. Let's talk about pipelines. So it definitely has been a frustrating, hot summer for pipelines for Greenfield and existing pipes. And there's a long list here. I'll just quickly go over that. Keystone XL, the U.S. Supreme Court required a change in permitting for water crossings. And this means that you can't construct the pipeline in the United States in 2021. So that's a major setback, especially considering the U.S. presidential election, which is going to happen at the end of the year. And if the Democrats get in with Joe Biden, there's the potential that the pipeline gets delayed even more Mm -hmm. because he's not supportive of it. Well, the anti-pipeline I'll call it social momentum, is still very strong. And the ability to build pipelines, as we know from Canadian experience, is very difficult. And now we're seeing that happen in the United States in, with greater vigor. And I think that it's going to be very difficult to build either an oil or gas pipeline, a major pipeline, ever again, potentially. Yeah, well, and the, I think all of our listeners are probably following this, the Dakota Access Pipeline. This is a a different one because this was an already operating pipeline where the court said, hey, back before you built it, you didn't do the environmental impact assessment the way you should have. So let's shut it down until we've done that work. Now, that is being appealed. We're going to find out what happens. But there's the potential for a existing operating pipeline to be shut down because they deemed yep. the environmental work up front yep. not to be good enough. That's a new precedent. The Atlantic Coast Pipeline. Now, this is a a major pipeline that was going to take gas from the Appalachia region, which is a major gas-producing region on the East Coast. The partners had spent $3.4 billion on the project. They appealed a court objection to the project all the way to the Supreme Court. They had a favorable ruling, but they said, you know, they're still worried about future litigation and the potential for long, drawn-out timeframes and even higher costs. So they walked away from this $3.4 billion investment and yeah, said they're not yeah. going to go for it. Yeah, I, you know, I think that the forces against building new pipeline are not just environmental. What we've seen with the COVID-19 pandemic and the impact on production, this sort of a, what they call a, like a, a tail event, in other words, uh, or black swan event, has really upped the risk profile of energy infrastructure, especially oil and gas energy infrastructure, especially oil because of its impact on mobility. And so the pipeline companies look at this and say, well, wait a minute, Uh, we actually were starting to overbuild for the production and we need to alter our risk return perceptions given that actually we may see our pipelines not full in future for all sorts of potential reasons, whether they're sort of environmental pressures, substitution by alternative modes of mobility or black swan pandemic type events. Or our lack of growth in the supply side just because the oil and gas producers don't get capital. That's a great point. COVID has created way more uncertainty than before. So you said maybe there's the potential that pipelines don't get built. Well, I will say it's interesting when you think about the two projects that are moving forward in Canada right now, they've needed government support. The government of Canada supports the TMX, and Alberta stepped in to help with the financing for Keystone XL. And this is because these projects are so risky now that private capital really can't afford to take on this risk. Like, for example, that Atlantic Coast Pipeline. Are you going to take a project, spend $3.4 billion, and then find out, oh, it's not going to go forward? 
private capital doesn't no. want to take risks like that. So maybe the only way to build pipelines is with support of public capital yeah. that, you know, has that patient capital that, sure. you know, sees the bigger picture and isn't looking for short-term returns. Yeah, and that may seem shocking to many, especially those who are accustomed to free market type dynamics. But I would suggest that most of the world's oil and gas infrastructure is under national ownership, in other words, state control, and that it is funded by the state because it is deemed to be vital infrastructure. A lot of even non-oil and gas energy infrastructure is state controlled in many jurisdictions, even utilities. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like transmission electrical lines. Uh, transmission yeah. lines. So, you know, the notion of the government being involved in energy infrastructure is actually not all that unusual. I would actually say it's the norm around the world. And the call that has been made is that pipelines like the Trans Mountain is actually vital to the economy, given how much the oil that it transports contributes to you know, taxes and royalties and all sorts of other financial benefits. Yeah, and I mean, Jobs. energy security. It well, that's creates, a whole other one, yeah. It fosters mm -hmm. uh, entrepreneurial innovation yeah. by having that infrastructure there. Yeah. So there's a lot of good reasons for doing it. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, governments are also spending like crazy right now and yeah. maybe have limited capital too going well, I, forward. Yeah, these are, these are, I'm just giving you my observations, but I'm also saying that whether it's funded by Western governments, such as in Canada, or by corporations in the free market, it's going to be much more difficult to build these things in future. Okay, well, let's talk about what the implications are. Let's say that we can't build very many, if any, new pipelines in North America. What would that look like? Well, first of all, North American production would be capped, right? Mm -hmm. If And, you know, if oil and gas demand continues to grow, we still don't know, but it may be that COVID has reset oil and gas demand at a lower level, but probably we may increase from there as mobility starts to increase, population grows, people get more wealthy. In that case, does that mean we're going to use less oil and gas in the world if we don't no. build any new pipelines? No, it doesn't. It just means the oil will find different supply chains, different routes. Yeah, and it will shift it'll to— It'll go on rail. Yeah, well, it'll, that'd be one. Yeah, or it could shift to other countries yeah. that do have infrastructure, yeah. like Russia and OPEC countries who sure. can build infrastructure. Sure. So it doesn't really achieve much for greenhouse gas emissions, no. which is what many of these people that are— delaying or, or trying to cancel these pipelines think that they're doing no. something for greenhouse gas emissions. It just shifts the emissions to other countries. Yeah, I mean, what's happened from a financial perspective is that the cost of capital, the cost of getting funding to be able to build these projects has gone through the roof. In other words, even you know, many lenders or equity capital providers will not even give money to pipeline companies, especially if they're transporting oil sands. However, the cost of capital in jurisdictions around the world that are nationally or state-controlled is actually very low. And so we have this situation where building infrastructure in countries like Russia and elsewhere is going to continue, but building pipelines in Europe, North America, is probably going to come to a halt. So it is a big geopolitical shift that's happening right now that will continue for the next few years. Well, and it will result in economic benefits for those countries who maybe increase their production. Yeah. You know, even though demand may decline at some point, mm -hmm. they could actually get a bigger and bigger market share. Right. And they could be getting those economic benefits and places like the U.S., Canada, Europe wouldn't. The other thing I think it could lead to is to make things even worse is lower prices for producers in North America. Because if we're tight infrastructure and we can't add yeah. new, we have more 
periods probably where we hit those constraints and we get those big price discounts. And so producers here, again, are not going to get the same return, same economic benefit because we have these constraints to our takeaway capacity. Yeah, yeah. I haven't looked at the numbers of late, but about 20% of the world's oil and gas is in the free market and 80% is under state control. The 20% that is in the free market can no longer compete effectively with the 80% that is under state control because of the ability to access capital. Well, and so that's just potentially going to get worse, right? Yeah. And energy security yeah. for North America is going to get worse in that we're going to be more dependent yeah. on offshore energy. I think in many cases, too, depending what happens, it could create higher prices for consumers here because we're importing and less dependent on our own. But also for specific infrastructure issues, for example, this Enbridge Line 5, which is, we've talked about it before on the podcast, it's in a very important pipeline that supplies oil to parts of the Midwest as well as to Ontario. If that were to be shut down, it could increase the costs of propane and refined products to people in Ontario and Michigan. Wasn't it, it was shut down momentarily. Well, it, it's, part of it is shut down right now because of um, yeah. issue, but there was a discussion to shut the whole thing right. down. And, and if we get into a world where we start shutting down infrastructure in North America, there could be pockets of North America that face very high prices right. because we're going to be railing or trucking. I don't know how we're going to get the crew down. Right. In this world, this kind of hostile pipeline world, Mm -hmm. you could start to see increases to consumers in certain pockets yeah. if key yeah. infrastructure is yeah. is yeah. Uh, deemed to uh, be too dangerous. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, the counter-argument is, okay, well, we're transitioning off of hydrocarbon fuels to electric vehicles, et cetera, et cetera. Therefore, this whole argument is moot. It's not moot because the rate at which we are transitioning on the consumption side is far slower than the rate that we are seeing issues on the supply side. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, we still have all combustion engine light duty vehicles. And even if we could, with a magic wand, start only selling electric cars today, it would take 15 years to change out the fleet, right? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, this is a multi-decade problem. In the end, I just don't see anything positive that can come out of the fact that we couldn't build pipelines in North America if that were to be the case. It, it all seems negative to me. It is, except, you know, we've talked in the past about how if the producers, the oil and gas producers, don't have access to capital, then their production isn't going to grow, and therefore we don't need the pipelines anyway. Right. We don't hit those bottlenecks right, and constraints. Right. But that is part of that larger discussion about who is going to supply the world's oil and gas. Is it going to be the free market transparent companies, such as the super majors that have to report their quarterly mm -hmm. results and their ESG and everything else? Or is it going to be the 80% of companies that are state-owned that have no duty, no obligation to uh, report any of that stuff? Right. Why would you want to not have production from companies like Husky, yeah, who are committing exactly. to net zero, yeah. and, and other super majors yeah. that are using the North American system? So, well, let's hope that uh, we can get some of these pipeline projects unstuck and moving again. But it is a potential scenario that I think we should be thinking about the implications of. And it does add to that cost of capital and the uncertainty for the sector, again, affecting potentially. It's kind of self, you talked about, well, maybe we're not going to grow anyway. Well, it's a bit of, um, because of that, it's increasing the chances we're not, not going to grow. grow. Right? It's a self-referring yeah. argument. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about the write-downs of sure. uh, assets from the super majors over the last month or so. So I'll give you some examples. Shell took a $17 billion write-down associated with COVID and their 
expectations of lower prices and what that mm-hmm. means to the value of the reserves that they have. BP, $22 billion. Chevron, it was a while ago, but they wrote off $10 billion related to shale gas assets in the U.S. And last week, the Total writing down $7 billion for their Fort Hills and Sermont oil sands projects made a lot of news here in Canada. I think it's, first of all, important to define what is a write-down. Like, yeah. what, what does that really mean? The accounting of it all. Yeah, it basically, with lower future prices, so many of these companies have said, you know, we had an expectation for prices to be at a certain level, and we thought the value, the accounting value of these reserves on our balance sheet should be a certain amount. Yeah. And what they said is now that we think that with COVID, the long-term price is lower, that we've written down the accounting value of these assets. And so to me, it's a little confusing because it's being spun, at least in articles that I'm reading, that somehow it means these companies are stranded and that they're less value than people thought they were. But you know, first of all, that isn't really how companies are valued today. Is no, all those they're not. Reserves. I mean, it's it's like you say, okay, really simplistically, price minus cost is equal to profitability. And so, if price comes down, as it has in the oil world because of the pandemic, then price minus cost is a lot less. Less profitability means the value of the asset that produces it goes down. All right. So, is this any different from? the profitability of a restaurant, a shopping mall, an airline, and a whole suite of other industries that are being affected by the pandemic. Yeah, and it's a great point. I actually just Googled write-downs, and I got, just in the last uh, week or two, like Kraft Heinz made a $3 billion write-down. DuPont wrote down a bunch of money because of less auto sales. A big bank had a $5.5 billion write-off. Face it, COVID is causing companies to reassess the value of their future cash flows and their businesses and generally say that they're worth less in their accounting value. I do want to say, too, when it comes to the oil and gas producers, I feel like they weren't being realistic about future prices, and they frankly should have downgraded these a lot earlier. Oh, yeah. I mean, what were they using, $70 or something? Not very many of them actually tell you the numbers, but BP was using $70 oil Brent and 430 gas price. $4.30. And so now they've said, okay, we're going to value our assets on $55 Brent and uh, $290 gas price. Well, they should have done that years ago. And uh, I think they're taking... Well, you know, know, yeah, they should have done it years ago. But the public, those that are in the public markets, the investors had already discounted. I mean, they weren't using... Investors were not evaluating the super majors on $70 anyway. Well, that is the most important point here. The vast majority of value that investors and the market put on these companies doesn't come from these long-term reserves that are going to be, in Total's case, oil developed beyond 2050 is what they wrote down. You know, they're valuing these companies from the production that they're going to get over the next 10 to 15 years from the assets that are already producing. Right. And the write-downs of these long-term reserves doesn't affect that. The most important valuation metric is how much cash flow can you generate on a reliable basis? How much can you give back to me? They don't really consider the accounting value of not uh, no. of these uh, long-term They used reserves. to in the past, but as the uncertainty of what is going to happen to oil and gas in an era of carbon, in an era of transition, in an era of these sorts of black swan events means that the value of anything beyond, I would argue, 10 years has got to be written down or significantly devalued. But I would argue that again. I mean, what is the value of an airplane that's sitting on tarmac somewhere, Mm -hmm. not flying, especially an old airplane? 
that is not as efficient as a modern airplane. Or all these hotels around the, the world hotels. that are empty and who knows when they're yeah. going to fill again. So, I mean, yeah. I think that there's a lot of this sort of thing going on in the world. The oil and gas industry is not unique. It is susceptible to the forces of transition, unknown events, and environmental things. And I, I would suggest to you that this is a, a financial pandemic that is affecting many industries of the world. And we shouldn't think that oil and gas is unique. Well, so in summary, you know, I think we, we're making the case here that this doesn't necessarily prove that uh, you've got stranded asset risk by owning oil and gas stocks because the mm -hmm. market has already taken into account the um, yeah. uncertainty about the value of those future reserves, and the market's already skeptical about that. Do you want to talk about BP? Yeah, let's talk about BP. So big news this week with a major new corporate strategy. They cut their dividend in half, going from something like 10% to 5%. But that wasn't all. They announced a very aggressive new strategy to move off oil and gas. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm always intrigued. In fact, I uh, love to study companies historically that have, quote, pivoted their core business to reflect the new world. You know, examples that I can think of are IBM, you know, the computer company that uh, used to make typewriters. You know, they shifted to personal computers and word processing, you know, things like that. Yeah, the, they've the, lasted the, like over 100 years. And, and there are a limited number of examples of very large companies that have actually transitioned their business from the old modality, recognized technological change in forces and moved to a completely new line of business. And those are the companies that have endured over the course of history. There aren't that many of them. And so if BP can pull this off, I think it's very interesting. So that's one side of it. All right. The other side of it relates back to our earlier conversation, which is that it's a shame that a leading transparent Western free market oil and gas producer that uh, was already very focused on ESG is going to be taken offline and their barrels are going to be replaced by barrels of opaque state-controlled oil from wherever. Right. In, in all, if the demand doesn't change, yeah. then that void yeah. will be filled by some, yeah. some other producer. So, you know, BP, and we'll see if there, as I said in, earlier on in my opening comments, are they a trendsetter? We'll see. I think that the pivoting that is happening in the oil and gas industry has to be matched with the pivoting on the consumption end. And right. I don't really see it. Like, yes, demand has fallen by where are we now? Q3, the expectation is that we'll be back up to about 94 million barrels are, are, a day. I mean, we're so on only a, down 7%. Yeah, only down yeah. 7%. And it's taken a pandemic with people locked down wearing masks, you know, to do that. Yeah, like, no, uh, demand like, really hasn't changed. Like it really yeah. <laughs> has, and people don't have money to go out and change their behaviors. So the transition, interestingly, is happening more on the supply side than it is on the demand side. Until such time as we see true change in behavior and substitution, willing change in behavior and substitution on the consumption side, I don't think this move of Western oil companies to get off oil, and they're being forced to do that, as I said by my earlier comments about the cost of capital, is necessarily a good thing. Because well, it just means that the barrels are going to become more opaque and uh, not as ESG-friendly barrels as uh, they were before. 
Hey, I just want to make one point too about that. You know, we've had a pandemic and everything we've been through and oil demand's only down 7% yeah. at this point, which is just another argument against <laughs> stranded assets. Like how could it be a stranded well, asset if we've no, gone yeah, through yeah, this yeah, and we still have a demand of 94 million barrels a day? But oh, let's go back to the numbers because we didn't actually kind of talk about those. BP is talking about a 40% reduction in their oil and gas production by 2030. So I worked it out. They never put out their corporate decline rate. Some companies do, but they had put out another number that they think the global average decline rate is 5% per year. So decline the decline rate is the rate at which the production decreases if there is no new investment, no new drilling. Yeah. So if BP just took their assets as they are today, extracted all the cash flow, put it into new energy. Yeah. Uh, then potentially every year they'd get 5% yeah, smaller. Yeah. And I worked it out. That actually gets you to a 40% reduction yeah. by in 10 years. This is called in the industry a blowdown scenario. In other yeah. words, you take your assets, you don't invest anymore in exploration, production, or development. You just produce what you have until you drain the reservoirs and shut them in and abandon them. And so what you're saying is that if BP is going to achieve their target by 2030, which is a 40% reduction... Which in production. Uh, in production, it means basically they're just going to blow down their assets. Yeah, I mean they could they could sell assets and then still invest a little bit. I don't know what they're going to do, but it's the yeah. equivalent of that. It's pretty drastic. I just want to say that of the other majors, Total's the only one that I'm aware of that has put some sort of goal around their future production declining. Mm-hmm. And they're saying they want to be aligned with the IA sustainable development case, which is a two degree scenario. But to put it in perspective. That would mean that they would, Total would decline about 10% in their oil production by 2030, and their gas production could even grow a little bit and still be in line with the two-degree scenario. So this is a very aggressive goal. You know, BP is not saying we're trying to make it work with the two-degree scenario. They're saying we're getting out of the oil industry. Right. Right. So anyway, I mean, in summary, intriguing, super interesting from a corporate pivot standpoint. However, I can just see the Russians rubbing their hands with glee saying, this is fantastic. We're taking offline a super major production and free market, and we're just going to take that uh, take that market share or, now, any, or any of those other countries. Well, here's the, here's the other side of the coin, though. They're going to put all that money into things like renewable generation, and they want to become a market leader in hydrogen. Like Maybe all that money is going to accelerate the adoption of these new emerging net zero technologies. Well, that's fantastic. I'm, I'm a supporter of that kind of thing. But you have to have consumption of hydrogen and the infrastructure for it to make this all work and be economic. Right. right. Yeah, and and, and I, I'm, my argument has long been, I don't see the consumption side of things changing faster than the supply side of things. Okay, well, we've covered a lot of topics on our first podcast back. Yeah, There's actually my, been a lot of news flow this summer. There a lot has. Of I just want to get back outside. Yeah, yeah, enjoy <laughs> that uh, 30 degrees or get back into the air conditioning. Okay, well, thank you for joining our podcast. If you liked listening to this podcast, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.